0: We are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. If you have your scriptures, you can turn there. Before we get started in our study this morning, though, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can again open your word and before that to sing songs of praises to you because you are a worthy God. You are the worthy God. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us this morning as we hear from you and the authority that your word carries, and that your spirit will work in our lives again. Remind us of the truth. Draw us to you. Change our hearts. Warm our hearts as we hear the exhortations that are so necessary to hear. So glorify yourself this morning in this. In your name I pray. Amen. In order to get a hold of Hebrews chapter 2, we must first remember a few things. And so let's review a few things we've mentioned repeatedly uh, through our study in Hebrews so far. Number one, we said that Hebrews is obviously a treatise on the greatness or supremacy, superiority of Jesus Christ. That is obvious in the text, and uh, we've seen it already in chapter one. We will see it again and again. Uh, you cannot avoid that, uh, nor should we. Um, as we work our way through it, though, what we will discover is that, as we said, even at the very, very the very beginning as we did the overview, is that it is not merely a theological work. It is a theological work, yes, but it is also an exhortational work. And uh, it is important that we recognize that. Uh, Too often the book of Hebrews is approached from the perspective of pure theology, and the exhortation is missed. The theology that is given in Hebrews is for the purpose of giving context to and understanding to the exhortation. And there are numerous exhortations. Today's passage is the first of the exhortations. Now, we've been doing some of the exhortations every step of the way like almost pre-exhortation of what we're going to see here today in chapter 2 and in future weeks. But the exhortation is absolutely essential. Uh, What I mean by that is the exhortation by itself is meaningless if we don't see it couched in the theology. The theology is valueless if we don't see it couched in the exhortation. In other words, if I may put it this way, to see the exhortation and respond to the exhortation without understanding the reason why means that we will by nature become legalists. You follow me so far? We follow the law because it's the, the law. We follow the commands bec- and avoid the, the, the things that are being prohibitive. Why? Because that's what God said. If we get caught up in the theology and miss the exhortation, We end up with data, like a library in our room, in our house, I mean, that we seldom go into, but we have it if we need to access it. But it has no real impact, no real difference into our lives. And so eventually what we find happening when we get caught up in the truth or the theology that is presented in the Scriptures without the exhortation, we end up with this. I can talk about Jesus, for example, since Hebrews is about Jesus, I can discuss who Jesus is, but because he and all that data, that truth about who Jesus is, never really changes my life or, or calls me to account in the way I live, in the way I think, in the way I breathe, in the way I function, then all that data becomes really peripheral and meaningless, irrelevant. has nothing to do with anything. It's just I can have conversations. But even in those conversations, I'm really detached from the conversation because they haven't affected my life. You ever meet anybody like that that talks about Jesus? They can have a conversation with you about Jesus. They can talk to you about Jesus. But there's something missing. You can just almost sense it. There's something missing. You know what that is? They forgot all about the exhortation. They've forgotten the call in light of the theology. Well, just a reminder that in chapter 1, we looked at the superiority or the supremacy of Jesus over two categories of people, or of created beings, let me put it that way. What was the first category of beings that he was talking about? The prophets. The superiority of Jesus over the prophets. The second category was what? The angels. Those are the two categories. Now, if you remember, the last couple of weeks, as we worked our way through those, through that first chapter, what we said was, you may not have an issue with the superiority of angels over Jesus or the superiority of Moses over Jesus. We're not Jews, nor are we living back in that era, although there are some people who would claim to be believers that struggle with the ordering angels and and uh, Jesus Christ. But typically in our setting, we don't have that problem. But I want to remind you what I said was in chapter 1, what we really have is it's more like, a priming of the pump to think about you and I evaluating what are the things, the created things that I find myself hel- holding more valuable than Jesus. Functionally speaking in life. Does that make sense so far? may not be the prophets, and, and especially in most, most dispensational churches, it wouldn't be the prophets because that's Old Testament. And it may very well not be angels, but being human, we all have things that, if we're not careful, created, order things that will take superiority or supremacy over Jesus Christ. And that is that preliminary exhortation we talked about the last couple of weeks. Now, in light of that, we come to chapter 2, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We have the first exhortation. We are doing pre-exhortations throughout the study. But we have the first exhortation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that the writer of Hebrews presents to the reader to interact with, and it's really important we get this, the exhortation it serves the purpose of reflecting backwards and interacting with chapter 1. Because the writer of Hebrews is trying to say what we just talked talked about in chapter 1 should radically transform the follower of Jesus' life. And that's what he's going to argue. If someone claims to be a believer, chapter 1 should be transformative. Chapter 1 should be a chapter that alters the very direction of a believer's life. However, we are human, aren't we? I hope so. I don't like preaching to non-humans. We're humans. And we are, as one of the hymns that we sing says, we are prone to wander, right? We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The pull is there, isn't it? If you don't believe it is, then you're believing a lie you've already been wandering. As a matter of fact, you've wandered really far astray. while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, words mean something, and in this text, words really mean something. And so we're going to be careful as we look at the words that are used. There's some words in here that are really, really important to get. So let's go back to verse 1. The first word that's important is the word therefore, and I'm not going to get into the trite little statement that people give for that. Be that as it may... Obviously, when he says, therefore, he's referencing everything in chapter 1. In light of chapter 1, in light of the truth of chapter 1, and the truth of chapter 1 summed up is the supremacy of Jesus. The superiority of Jesus. In fact, what chapter 1 establishes right off the bat is that it isn't even a comparison. There is no comparison between the prophets and Jesus there is not any comparison between angels and Jesus and as i said in the previous weeks if there's no comparison between Jesus and prophets and Jesus and angels that whatever you hold to and cling to and whatever i hold to and cling to that i find typically comes into play into its wrongful place of being in priority over Jesus in my life it doesn't even match up to the prophets. It doesn't even match up to the angels. So, you know, it's like prophets and angels are here. Whatever I hold to is way down here in reality in comparison to those two categories. So if there is no comparison between Jesus and prophets and Jesus and angels, and chapter 1 makes that really clear, how much less is there a comparison to what you and I hold to? It's just amazing how much less. So there's no, no comparison at all. It's only a contrast between the superiority of Jesus and the absolute subservience of everything else that's created. So that's what the therefore is referencing. What, what the writer of Hebrews wants the reader to do is stop there on the fir- very first word. Reflect back on chapter one and say, Yeah, I've got everything screwed up. Just the word therefore. I've got everything out of order. That's what I have. Too often, everything is out of order. I've placed too much authority and power and value in things that do not have power and authority and value. And I haven't placed the proper perspective on the only one thing, only one person that has that. Therefore, notice what he says next we must pay much closer to attention to what we have heard now let me just stop on the second on that on that first phrase of hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 i want you to notice that the writer of hebrews said we must play, pay what much closer attention to what we've heard now in his context immediately he's talking about chapter 1 we must pay much closer attention to the superiority, to the supremacy of Jesus. He's saying, in effect, Jesus must never be on the periphery. Jesus must never be assumed. Jesus must never be forgotten. Jesus must never... Take second place. Jesus must never be seen as somehow second value. Second principles. Always primary. Always first. Always supreme. Always. Notice also what he says. He says we must, and he includes himself in that, doesn't he? He says we. He's including himself. The writer of Hebrews includes himself in it, and he says what? We must pay much closer attention. What he means by that is it doesn't matter who you are. Whether you are someone who just got saved, been saved for 30 years, 50 years, 70 years, if you are a spiritual giant, Even if you are a spiritual giant, I don't even know what that is. You must pay much closer attention. He could have just said, pay closer attention. What did he say? Much closer attention. In other words, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter how much you pay attention to Jesus, to what you've heard about Jesus. You must pay much closer attention. In other words, to say it a different way, he's saying, you can't pay enough attention to Jesus. You can't. Ever. You, You know what the writer of Hebrews is really saying? Let's just get it right down to brass tacks. You're in church on Sunday morning? Here we are. Sunday morning. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, we're worshiping Jesus, we're studying Hebrews chapter 2. In this moment in time, the writers of Hebrews are saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you and I must pay, pay much closer attention right here, right now. Right here, right now. Can I just present it to you? If I could just get it as clear as I possibly can. Our, our flesh is frail, right? Is it easy when I'm up preaching to have your mind wander? I won't be offended. Is it easy? Of course it is. I mean, Steve gets up here and he starts droning away. I understand that. It's easy to have your mind wander, isn't it? Pay much closer attention. I'm just being really practical here. That's what he says. Be after it. Do what it takes to pay attention. That's what he's saying. Do you find yourself sleeping, falling asleep? Has that ever happened to anybody here? Well, yeah. You know what he's saying? Pay much closer attention. Do what it takes. I tell people regularly, if you're falling asleep in church, get up, go stand in the back, do jumping jacks. I don't care. Do what it takes to stay attention, to pay attention. Much closer attention. This is supremely important. There is nothing in your week that you will hear that's more important than the Word of God being preached. Do you realize that? Nothing. I don't care what it is. And it's not because Steve is doing it. It's because it's the Word of God. We must pay much closer attention. What does it take for us to pay much closer attention? By the way, i got more to say about that in a second, but you know why we don't pay much closer to attention? Any, anybody have any idea why don't we pay much closer attention? Yeah. We don't value it. Absolutely. We, it's not supremely valuable. It's a simple answer, right? This is not rocket science, although Stephanie is a rocket scientist. <laughs> this isn't rocket science. The reason why we don't play pay supreme importance or much closer to importance to it is because we don't consider it supreme. By the way, this is a really good test. To ask ourselves, how do I know that Jesus is supreme importance? Does it consume does he consume me? No. Well, does something else consume us? Yes, we're all consumed by something. There is your supreme importance. How do we know what is of supreme importance to us? Because we are consumed by it. Our lives are focused on it. Our our finances are focused on it. Our time is focused on it. Our emotions are focused on it. Supreme importance. Does that make sense? Supreme importance. What he's saying here, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to. To what we've heard, you know, it doesn't just refer to church. he doesn't say anything about church in this text. I just use it as an example because we're here. Your work, you're working away. You know what the writer of Hebrews says: While at work, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. If all things are from him, through him, to him, that means our work is too. Our work is not excluded from that. <clears throat> we're, we're, we're out recreating somewhere. The writer of Hebrews says, while you're recreating, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. While we're relaxing at home, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We're eating dinner with our family. Same thing. Any other category of life, same thing. The statement in chapter 2, verse 1, does not exclude any aspect of our lives. Can I just submit something to you? Here's one of the weird things that happens. When, when you and I repentantly begin to fight to remember Jesus, to think about Jesus, you know what begins to happen? The Spirit begins to work in our life in a really special way. And lo and behold, we start seeing Jesus as supreme. That's what happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. we focus on Jesus which causes us by the power of the Holy Spirit to want more Jesus as we want more Jesus you know what begins to happen we start focusing on Jesus more What we've heard about Jesus and it's not just chapter 1 it's going to be the rest of Hebrews as a matter of fact it's the rest of the Gospels it's the rest of the scriptures because we're introduced to Jesus all throughout the scriptures that's what we're gonna discover Again, chapter 1 is just a primer, a priming of the pump, as it were. And Before you know it, we're going to find ourselves saying, I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus. We sing about him every week, right? We sing about that very thing, don't we? And before you know it, that starts to become who we are, people who just want more of Jesus. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And there's much more we could say about that, but I want to move on. Notice the words he gives next. Lest we drift drift away from it. Now there's there's two points I want to draw out of this. Notice the very first word, lest. Lest we drift away from it. I want you to notice what he just said with that word, lest. The idea is, there's only one of two alternatives. Either we pay much more attention than what we are right now, or something else happens. I want you to hear that. It's very important. Either I pay much greater attention to what I've heard, or... It's not, I can be in some sort of stasis. Is that the right word? It is, Tom? Abby, is that the right word? Stasis, just stable. The idea we start to think about, I want to make sure from a medical perspective it was as well, Tom. (laughs) The idea we, we, we deceive ourselves with is this idea that somehow I can I, I, I can maybe not focus much greater attention on Jesus? Well, we've heard about Jesus. I cannot do that, but yet I can kind of just stay where I'm at. I can kind of, instead of exploding in focus of my attention on Jesus, I can kind of stay at this stable point in my life. That's not open the discussion here he says either we're paying in effect much greater attention to Jesus or something else is happening and it's not stasis you're either growing your understanding of Jesus or something bad's happening spiritually speaking something dramatically bad is happening either we're paying much greater attention to Jesus or we what Drift away. Now, I want you to hear the word he chooses. Because he he doesn't say, we, either, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we rebel against Jesus. That's not what he said. See, rebelling against Jesus is a very active thing, isn't it? Rebelling, change it from Jesus. If you have a boss at work, and you rebel that's very active isn't he isn't it if if your boss says i want you to do blank and you say take a hike to the guy forget you i know better you're an idiot and i'm going to do what i want to do that's rebellion pure and simple but what he says here quite to the contrary is we must pay much closer attention lest we Drift away. There's something slow and gradual about the process, isn't it? It's called being lulled into sleep and thinking you're all right. It's almost, if I may use illustration, since he uses the term drift, it's kind of like you get on your sailboat, you thought you tied it up to the dock, but you didn't, and you went to sleep. And you wake up the next morning, you go out onto the deck of the ship, the boat, the sailboat, and it's all pea soup fog, and there's no dock to be found. That's drifting away. You've drifted away. You don't know how to get back to, to, to harbor. You don't know how to get back to the dock. You don't know anything. You've drifted away. Now, what's going to happen if you drift away in that scenario eventually? Well, most likely you're going to what? Eventually end up on the rocks, right? And the boat's going to be demolished, destroyed. You see, that's the thing. That's, it, it's subtle. It's not, it doesn't start out with this absolute rebellion thing. What it starts out with is what? Something that feels normal. Something that feels right, something that feels good, something that makes sense, something that works, seemingly. Something that's comfortable, and we don't even realize. We're like that guy in the sailboat who has fallen asleep, and he's sleeping. It's comfortable, it works. But the boat's no longer attached to the dock. He didn't pay much closer attention. And so he drifted away. That's the insidious nature of this whole thing that we call Christianity. Because we can actually deceive ourselves into thinking that we're really good Christians. And we're adrift. And the reason why is because we understand Christianity all wrong at that point. It's not all about Jesus. It's not Jesus in everything and through everything and fr- everything from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's not our understanding of Christianity. And so it feels good. We've drifted away. But we don't even recognize it. If you are not someone who is, and the idea of verse 1 is, in a growing way, you are paying much closer attention. This month, I'm paying more close attention to Jesus than I was last month. And two months ago, I was worse off than I was last month with my focus on Jesus and the truth of who Jesus is. If that's not you, you and I, if it's not me, you and I are adrift. We're not in stasis. We're not stable. We're adrift. That's the exhortation of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We must pay much closer attention because if we don't, we're drifting. If there's nothing different from you and your focus on Jesus, this month from last, you're starting to drift. If your focus on Jesus isn't greater this week than two months ago, you're further adrift. If if your focus right now from Jesus from last year at this time is not really changed much, You're really adrift. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Three years from now, now you're nowhere near the dock. You've drifted away. You're heading towards the rocks. Now, I want to clarify something before we move on to verse 2. He is not in any way saying, I want to be as clear as I possibly can be here, the writer of Hebrews is in no way saying that you and I need to pay much closer attention to what God told us we need to do. That's not what he's saying. At all. If you're evaluating your spiritual walk, your Christianity, by how well you keep the rules, by how well you keep the law, by how well you obey, you're adrift. It's not called lawianity. It's called, what? Christianity. It's Christ. If we are not paying much closer to it, attention to what we heard about Jesus we've drifted away that's what we've done it's not about the law verse 2 for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation Stop right there. A couple things. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, what message is he referring to? Primarily, he's referring to Luke chapter 2. The message of Luke chapter 2 was what? By the angels. Don't fear, for behold, what? I bring to you good tidings of great joy. Which shall be to all people what? For today is born unto you a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Christ the Lord. The message of the angels proved reliable. A baby was born, and that baby was Christ the Lord, the Savior. Now, it proved to be reliable in that not just he was the Savior, he was Christ, the Lord, but he grew up and did what? Fulfilled the requirements of a Savior, of the Savior, of the Messiah. Proved absolutely reliable. Now, it's important that we understand that what the angels brought. Proved to be reliable. And it's also important to recognize that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, if you disobeyed the, the word of God, the law of God, retribution came. Ultimately fulfilled in the retribution that was poured out justly on Christ. If all that is true, if it is true that Jesus was the the promised one that the angel said had come, and he was, if it is true that Jesus accomplished what the Redeemer that had been promised to humanity since since Genesis chapter 3, if Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise, and he did, If it is true that every transgression or disobedience would receive a just retribution, and it did, and there were many demonstrations in the Old Testament of that being the case, wasn't there? He disobeyed, and there was punishment. There was retribution. But ultimately fulfilled in Christ. If all that is true, if, in other words, here's what especially the second half of verse 2 is talking about. If God, and this is the idea here, if God is holy as He says He is, and all this retribution demonstrates His holiness, fulfilled in the wrath poured out on Jesus, if God is that holy, is that passionate about holiness, and is that passionate about Jesus Christ, His Son, then, verse 3, how shall we escape? we neglect so great a salvation why do we think we will escape it if we neglect if you go to the Old Testament did people neglect the promises of God yes and that's why huge swaths of them did what did not enter into their rest They were out in the wilderness. They were out in the wilderness for 40 years wandering, right? And they died. They didn't enter their rest. Why? Because they neglected their great salvation. Why? And then after the children of those who died in the wilderness began to come up the the east side of the Jordan River, They got to the Valley of Peor after having two great victories by the power of God. And then they began to worship false gods. And God judged them, and 25,000 of them died. Why did they die? Because they neglected so great a salvation. That's why they died. And we can go on and on and on with the examples. On and on. And ultimately, Jesus Christ died because people neglected so great a salvation. Now, what's the point of verse 3? The point of verse 3 is for believers, those who claim to be believers, to ask themselves a very important question. What in the world would give you and I any inkling of thought that we could avoid the same thing? That's that's the exhortation. Verse 3 again. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Every step of the Old Testament, people neglected a great salvation. And what happened? Retribution. And, and, and if you think, well, that was just an Old Testament thing? Really? How about try on. Uh, what's his name? Um, Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you. I couldn't think of the name. Ananias and Sapphira, New Testament. They neglected so great a salvation. And by the way, their life wasn't that big of a deal. Let's be honest. They sold all their property. They weren't required to do so. They gave most of it to the church. They weren't required to give it all. Their lie was, well, we gave it all. They gave a boatload of it to, to the church. They said it was all of it. Peter said, why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? Dead. Dead. It's only God's mercy that we're still here today. Do you realize that? It's only God's mercy. We deceive ourselves in thinking that we'll escape. Even though we don't pay much closer attention. And with the writer of Hebrews in his exhortation, the first exhortation in Hebrews chapter 2 is simply summed up by saying, do you really think? That God being a holy God, if we're going to be flippant about Jesus, if we're going to be casual about Jesus, do you really think that you're going to escape? Do I really think I'm going to escape? Really? Every step of the way. No one escaped. No one. People had all the covenant blessings and they didn't escape. What does God say? There was only a what? Faithful remnant. A crucial two words. A faithful remnant that he saved. That's it. Only a faithful remnant. Unfaithful. They had all the covenant blessings. They had everything. They had a covenant cut by God for them and they perished in the wilderness. Not entering the rest. And the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this very thing in a little bit. What the writer of Hebrews in verse 3 is in effect saying is, you neglect so great a salvation you perish. That's what he's saying. You perish for eternity. I neglect So great a salvation, I perish for eternity. I will not enter my rest. We like to think about eternal security and say it's guaranteed. And I argue the true salvation is guaranteed. Guaranteed. The only question is who has it? And the argument of the writer of Hebrews, and he's going to build on this the rest of the way through Hebrews, is if we neglect so great a salvation, it's the evidence that we don't have it. That's the evidence. If we continue to neglect, we are lost. We will not escape. No one ever did. We're banking on all the wrong things. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Can I just say this? The last two words there are so important. Great salvation. I appreciate he put the word great in there. He didn't say, how shall we escape if we neglect our salvation? Because that would be too easy to say, well, you know, I, 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 I don't really neglect it. If you don't see it as great, and in light of the context, the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing of all time, you've neglected it. If you see it as a good thing, I'm glad I got it, I'm heaven bound, Woo! that's great, I'm not hell bound, you may not have it. Because unless we agree with Christ what it even is, we don't have it. The argument of the writer of Hebrews is this is the greatest. Remember, we saw it in chapter one, the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ. It's not greatest. We don't have it. We have some sort of faux salvation. That's not the real deal. I'm sorry. Fovation. That's right. That's right. How should we escape if we neglect? That neglect means we're drifting away. It means, verse 1, we're not paying much closer salvation. We're neglecting it. It's ga- it, it gathers dust. It's not front and center. If, again, if all things are from him, through him, to him, that means that our salvation and our Savior must be front and center in all things. He goes on, and he reminds the reader of Hebrews in verse 3, it, that is, salvation, that is, our Savior who brings us salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, our Savior, that is, the salvation was, the gospel. And it was attested to us by those who heard, verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, Distributed according to his will. Why does he give us that at the end of this, of this section? He gives it to us for a very simple and important reason. And here it is. The reason why your salvation is so important is because God says it was important. And God demonstrates its importance. How does he demonstrate it? Well, n- in verse 3. It was, first declare, it was declared at first by the Lord. What does that mean? It means God sent his son to this earth for the purpose of declaring it. That's how important it was to God. He sent his son to this planet to declare this great salvation. By the way, could I just step back for one second? give you tools that I think the Scriptures are giving us here to evaluate if we see it as great. God said it's great enough, it's valuable enough for me to send my son for the purpose of declaring it to you. If that's true, and it is, here's a test to see if we consider it great. Do you declare it? Or have you neglected it? If you're not declaring it, you're neglecting it. You see, that's how it works. If you're not declaring it, you're neglecting it. How should we escape if we neglect? Well, let's see how the Father, how God the Father demonstrates that it's it's of supreme value, and he doesn't neglect it. Well, he sent his son. Remember the story about how he sent all the prophets to declare it? And they did what with them? They killed them all. And so he says, I'll send my son. And he sends his son, and they kill him too. But the whole process, he says, it's valuable enough to have my son die for. That's what it means to not neglect. That's what it means to pay much closer attention to it. It doesn't mean I've got to go out and start telling the gospel to everybody. But listen, the reason why we don't proclaim the gospel is because we don't consider it great. That's why. We don't consider it great, so we don't declare it. We don't pay clo- much closer attention to it. That's why we don't declare it. It's the thing I always find intriguing, by the way, about, about Christians, people who claim to be Christians, is they'll sit around and they'll talk about politics. They'll talk about their recreation. They'll talk about their sports teams. They'll talk about their jobs. They'll talk about their cars and trucks. And they'll talk about their, their this and that and something else forever. But they won't talk about Jesus. And in so doing, what are they doing? They're neglecting and declaring what's of supreme importance. Do you realize that? It's exactly what we're doing. They're neglecting so great a salvation. Do you really think, if that's you, that you're going to escape? Do you think that somehow there's going to be some special dispensation? Where God is going to turn a blind eye to all that? The answer is no. And the reason why is because God sent His Holy Spirit. It's not that we've got to do better in doing all the things God says again, but God sent His Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we will love what He loves. And so that we will hate what he hates. And we become changed people. And the result is we what? We don't neglect. The result is that we do pay much closer attention because he changes, us so we love him. We once hated him. And we love him more today than yesterday. And so we just want him. And we just want to know him. That's what happens. So it was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus Christ, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. So in other words, those who heard told Paul and others, whoever wrote Hebrews. Why they tell him? Because it was a great salvation to them. Because it was a great salvation to them, they told. It was attested to us by those who heard. And of course, the us is now, those who categorize as us are now doing what? Including Paul and the writer of Hebrews and others are now testing. Right? The writer of Hebrews wrote this letter, they're testing. While God also bore witness, now we go back to God uh, the Father again, He bore witness, I'm sorry, God the Holy Spirit, bore witness by doing what? By having signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So special, dramatic things were happening declaring that what these people were saying is true. So the Spirit was involved in this as well. By the way, Time you'll appreciate a very Trinitarian passage here. God the Father is mentioned, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, all three, right there. So God the Holy Spirit does what in these early days of transition from wrath needed to wrath poured out on Jesus? Wrath satisfied is what? All these signs and wonders showing that this is of absolute importance. God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are all about. Listen, we we want you to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that these that we're declaring are true are absolutely true in every way. End of verse three and verse four are saying is this now we don't do the signs and wonders that those were early church things, but the point is look at what 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 God in his actions are saying are of supreme importance, the Gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. The point is we are people who are neglecting so great a salvation if we're not caught up in Jesus and his gospel of supreme importance of supreme value so the call to text this morning again is this I'm going back to verse 1 we're going to wrap up verse 1 therefore we must pay much closer to attention to what we've heard which has something very strong implied that I didn't mention yet Obviously, that means that we're not paying the attention we should. Does that make sense so far? And in order to pay much closer to attention, we need to acknowledge that. That's the acknowledgement necessary. In some ways, it's a painful acknowledgement necessary. I'm not paying the attention I should. I have neglected I have deceived myself into thinking I will escape. Even though I've neglected and continue to neglect. I have drifted away. That's the acknowledgment that must be had by everyone. Can I just say this real quickly? None of us here this morning are excluded from this acknowledgment that is necessary. I don't care who you are. And I base that upon the word we. None of us are excluded from that. And if that is true, and I believe absolutely it is, then the underlying part of this exhortation is, especially because there are a lot of Old Testament quotes in this whole, whole book, is one word that is underlying and implied here, and that is we need to return. We need to return our Redeemer. We need to return to the truth. We need to come back once again and pay much closer attention. In order to do so, the word we've used so many times, we need to repent. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what you need. If I may just say this, this is like the core of what we need to repent from all the time. Because I can never know Christ enough. I can never grapple enough with his great salvation. I must always be growing in my understanding. I must always be growing in my, my comprehension of the truth and the interaction of my life with that. So if I could just encourage you or exhort you, it's probably a better word, exhort you and I with this the call of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is to once again repent. The gracious call of God is to return. And as he says throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, I would argue, if we return to him, he returns to us. It's a beautiful picture. Never too far away. Call upon him while he is near. Confess to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, especially this. And when we confess to him, I would exhort you to cry out to him to change you so that this afternoon salvation will not once again, like so many Sunday afternoons that have gone by before, Cry out to him that this Sunday afternoon will not be a Sunday afternoon where Christ becomes peripheral again. That this Sunday afternoon will not be another Sunday afternoon where the great salvation will not be as great. But that this Sunday afternoon will be a Sunday afternoon of remembering Jesus. That this Sunday afternoon will be an afternoon of remembering your great salvation. Ask him by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the truth to remembrance and worship. Make this afternoon a, a worship afternoon. As you do all the things you're going to do, whether you're watching the football game or whether you're cleaning your house or whether you're mowing the lawn or whether, whether you're whatever, whatever. That you're worshiping Jesus and enjoying your great salvation and not neglecting it. So the Spirit will change your heart. And then when afternoon is over, you can pray again about this evening. And tomorrow morning, you pray again. What a great prayer. God, help me today. Help me today not to neglect. Help me to be anchored, tied up to the dock of Jesus. Find me close to you. Help me to recognize the moment I'm starting to drift by the power of your Spirit. Change me so that I will see your salvation for what it really is. So I'll see Christ for who he really is. I just really believe that if we start crying out to Christ that way, I think the spirit does things. I do. I absolutely do. Powerfully so. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we know that we are prone, absolutely prone to wander. And prone is probably too gracious of a term. We do wander regularly. We neglect regularly. We drift away regularly. We find most of our lives, Christ is on the peripheral, on the periphery. And other things are central. Lord, help us, each one of us, to repent of that. Lord, help us to know you. Change our hearts so that we will see the value of the great salvation you've brought. And that we will be transformed by the power of your spirit working within us. We ask you to fulfill your promises, to transform us, to change us. We know these are hard things to hear, but we acknowledge that we need to pay much closer attention, so help us. We cry out to you for mercy and grace but we know that your mercy and grace is primarily bestowed on us so that we worship you. Not so that we can continue to do whatever we want to do. So we ask you to change our hearts for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.